Well, good morning. Today marks the end of part one of our series through the last book of the Bible. And if, you, if you've missed any of the messages or if you haven't really been paying attention, if there's one thing, one lesson I want you to take away from these past nine weeks, it's this. Here we go. It's going to be on the screen. There it is. The book is called Revelation. No S. Can we practice together, class? Revelation. Not revelations. You're not making reservations. Okay? There's no S. And this coin jar is, is filling up because I'm going to pass it around. I'll pass it around a little bit later. Pass it around the office. It's great. It's a GoFundMe for Jonathan's plans to go to Japan in 2021. Uh, and so we can fill this up. If you hear anyone put add an S to Revelation, uh, put a coin in here and Domo Arigato, Mr. Roboto. So that's going to be that. That's our lesson for, uh, for the day. We've looked at the seven letters that Jesus dictated to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Seven being a complete whole number. Uh, and we see that the application is completely and wholly for the church today and for all of us. And I pray that you've been blessed and encouraged and challenged as I have through, throughout the series. But by way of review, let's consider the first six churches that received their letters before the one we look at today. The first letter went to the church in, in Ephesus. It was a careless church because they couldn't care less about outreach, evangelism, sharing the gospel outside their walls. They were like a little holy huddle. Then there was Smyrna. Smyrna was a crushed church. Tremendous pressure from the secular world and, and from the religious world around them, causing them such great pain and even tribulation. They were a crushed church. Then there was Pergamum. No, that's not a spice. Pergamum was a church that was compromising, a compromising church. Uh, they, they were giving in to and tolerating false teaching. And so they were compromising the very gospel of our Lord. Then there was Thyatira. This was a church in crisis. That that kind of compromise gave way to true heresy. They were a church in crisis. They were really falling apart, and Jesus wrote a letter to that church. And then there was Sardis. Sardis was a church that was canatonic. There was nothing going on behind those eyes. It was like looking good from far, but they were far from good. Then there was uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It was a small church. It was a powerless church, but they were mighty and powerful in the Lord. They were a Christ-centered and spirit-filled church. And finally, today, Laodicea. This church, we will find, is in the worst shape of all of them, for it's a Christless church. Christ cannot be found in that church. So I would invite you to please stand as Pastor Mark comes to read God's word. We honor God's word by standing together to hear it read. And he's going to come and read the letter to the church of Laodicea. And, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, they are neither cold nor hot. Would that they were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich. 
I have prospered. I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. For those whom I love, I reprove and rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant for him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Mark. Thank you. Please be seated. Jesus addresses them with the words of the Amen. That's a Hebrew way of, of saying what he then goes on to say, the words of the one who are faith, is faithful and true. They, they, they go together. Amen. Faithful and true. It's a callback to the opening lines of, of the revelation that John recorded. And I said over all these weeks that Jesus will always uh, adapt the characteristic or attribute of himself in that initial vision uh, to the circumstance of the church. But this one actually goes back to the very introductory remarks of chapter 1, verse 5, where John, in his own voice, gets to speak of, of the one that he's going to be recording this for. Of the one, it says in verse 5, the one who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. So he goes before that initial vision to give us a bigger picture unfolded before us of who it is that's speaking. That Jesus is the faithful and true one. He is the witness to God. That in Christ, all of God's promises are yes and amen. 2 Corinthians 1.20 What's he saying here is that he's true because he is the truth. He's the real deal. What he's communicating, you need to listen. And somehow... He has to go to this most fundamental of truths and realities because for some reason this church has forgotten it. Why would they need reminding if they've but forgotten it? They need to be reminded of who it is that's speaking to them. Here they are, the seventh church in line, a letter that would have gone at a postal route and, and each church would have heard the entire letter read to them and starting with Ephesus and going from place to place, the messenger taking that letter from church to church. And here are the saints in Laodicea waiting to hear, well, what's he have to say for us? Come on, Jesus, what's your word for us? We're the last in line. And he goes back to this most fundamental of truths, the words of the amen, the faithful and true one. There's only one other place in the Bible where amen is related directly to God. It's on Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, which says this, He who is blessed in the earth shall be blessed by the God of Amen. And what is the blessing of the God of Amen? What is the blessing that Isaiah writes of in chapter 65? Goes on, verse 17 says, The blessing of the new creation. Quote, Behold, 
I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. So listen, this is a prophecy written 700 years before Jesus, speaking of the God of the Amen, who will one day bring about a new heaven and new earth. And what are we studying? The book of Revelation. The book that tells us how it's unfolding even now and soon to be completed, new heaven and new earth fulfilled. So you see, we have to read Revelation with all of the Old Testament scriptures here. I create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And all these millennia later, it's unfolding. That Christ is the faithful one. He is the true one. He is the witness to all this par excellence because by his resurrection, he makes his perfect witness that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. It reminds me of a, the letter that Paul wrote to a sister congregation in Colossae. Have you ever studied the book of Colossians? Recorded there in chapter 1 in the, in the first Verses 15 and, and following, scholars think, is an early hymn of the church. Perhaps a, a hymn sung not only uh, among the Colossians, but even the Laodiceans. Jesus, Paul said, is, quote, the Son, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. Not about when Jesus was, was created, because he has, Christ has existed forever, but the order of his relation to the Father and his great authority as Father and Son. He has full authority. For the hymn continues, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1 15 to 17. So back to Revelation 3. If you're tracking with me. When Jesus says he is the beginning of God's creation and that he is the faithful and true witness, he's saying he is kicking off the fulfillment of this prophecy to Isaiah. And somehow these people in this church have completely forgotten that. Somehow they need to be reminded that Jesus is true. Somehow they need to be reminded that he is king. Somehow they need to be reminded that he is Lord over all the kings of the earth. Because they seem to have forgotten this most fundamental of truths. Being faithful and true is what Jesus is, and that's what Jesus expects of his church. But this church has lost its way. And they no longer are, are fulfilling their role as faithful witnesses to Jesus, the risen one. Something seems to be missing. And so he has a word for them. Look at verse 15. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm, underline lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, when we've studied the, the book of Revelation, I've said we have to first look at the symbolic meaning, the illustration, what's the allegory, what's he pointing to, what's this about? So what is 
Jesus pointing to? What's this an illustration of? What's the, what's the connection here? Is Jesus saying, I would rather you choose one way or the other. Either be hot spiritually, filled with, with passion for the Lord, just be red hot for the Lord, or I want you to be cold to the Lord, empty, frozen, frozen too in theaters now. Just, just the frozen chosen. Is that what Jesus is saying? Just choose a side. Don't be in the middle. Just either be red hot for me or cold for me. I'll, I'll take either one. Is that what Jesus is saying? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. We need a little bit more context to understand this reference to temperature. So we, we need to dig in just a little bit more to the context that he's speaking into because he's writing this in a way, he's dictating it in a way that these people and Laodicea could understand. In the uh, Lycos Valley, there were three major cities. There was Laodicea, and north of Laodicea was the city of uh, Herpopolis. Uh, It was about six miles north, and there there were hot springs, hot water that would would bubble up. How many like to go into a a hot tub? I know Pastor Mark loves his hot tub. They thought it had rejuvenating properties and medicinal properties just to, to have the, the source of this hot water uh, there just six miles north. The people would, would seek that out for, for healing purposes. And then off to the east, a number of miles, there was a city of Colossae, which I just mentioned, the, the Colossian church. And there they had uh, cold water, cold water springs, refreshing water. Think about a time and age when there was no refrigeration, no ice, to be able to have a cool glass of water would, would refresh the soul. And, and again, they thought that there were some medicinal uh, means and, and helpfulness of having a source of cold water. Hot water to the north, cold water to the east, but the Laodiceans, the city, of, the, the city had no water source, so it had to, to pipe it in. And it, it brought that in by aqueducts, by, by clay pipes and what have you, And historians know that the water that came there became lukewarm. By the time it traveled from the hot springs, room temperature. By the time they got any of that cool water, room temperature. And it was good for nothing because there was so much sediment in it. It was kind of gross. And so do you see the analogy now? Maybe this would be an analogy that we could understand here in the Pacific Northwest. How many here like room temperature coffee? Come on. Oh, give me a hot cup of joe or cold brew, right? I leave my coffee cup at my desk and I walk away from me and I come back and it's room temperature. Yuck, gross, it's good for nothing. That's the analogy Jesus is saying here. Uh, the, The Greek here is actually stronger than spit it out. It really means I'll vomit you out. What you're serving is making Jesus gag, essentially is what he's saying. Hot water, cold water, they have purpose. People are drawn to it. They think that there's something good in there, but not lukewarm water. No one goes to to the Laodiceans for their water. And when they do, the conditions of the water are so bad, it makes people sick. So Jesus is saying this about their witness. What you are serving up, church, is making people gag. Look at verse 17 and 18. They would get that. 
that analogy. Now they're going to get this one too. You see, Jesus has more to say to them in a way that they could relate to, the more a way that they could understand. Laodicea was known for three things. It was known for its great wealth. It was known, known for its fine uh, textiles, its, its wonderful fabrics and fashion, especially black wool that it was, would use for making fabrics. And it was known for its medical school. Three things this city was known for. You can read about it in extra-biblical historical materials. Its wealth, its fabrics, its textiles, and its medical school. And Jesus says, you think you're rich, well-off, and that you need nothing. Look, Look at verse 17b. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is a church that thinks they have it made in the shade. This is a people who say, I need nothing. From one of our small groups, someone comes to speak to me in my office. You stop a friend in the parking lot and you check in with one another. I see how we check in with one another. Imagine me checking in with someone. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? Oh, I'm good. I'm good, Pastor Pete. Not a care in the world. I need nothing. How can I pray for you? I need Jesus. I need him today. I need him yesterday. I need him so much tomorrow. Can you pray? Pray for for God's grace to come. I just need the Lord's presence in my life. Whoa, uh, Pastor Pete, I was thinking more along the lines of holiday plans and prayer requests about, you know, what you're going to be shopping for at Christmas time. That's a little heavy getting into you and Jesus so much. Because I can't relate to that because I, I don't have the kind of spiritual need that you're talking about. Maybe you should go see someone. Listen, when you think you have everything, you don't need Jesus. When you think you have everything, you're sitting around the Thanksgiving table and you think of all the things that you possess, all the things in your life, and you think, I don't have a care in the world, then you don't need Jesus. But when you you know that Jesus is all you've got, then you realize, like the church in Smyrna, like the church in Philadelphia, that's when you learn Jesus is all you need. A church in Laodicea was a wealthy church. People would come to them for favors. Yeah, we could spare spare a few uh, dollars for you. You need some help? Sure, no problem. We'll we'll help you out, Smyrna. Philadelphia, you're a small church. Let's give you some resources because we have all we need. And realizing or thinking that they had all that they need, then they didn't need Jesus. They have all the money, all the wealth, and the position. Jesus says, I know who you truly are. Spiritually, you are bankrupt. Look at verse 18. He wants to counsel them. Here's just some some good free counsel, something that they can relate to because of of all the merchandise that was moving, all the merchants there. There's something that that people would try to sell you things. Here's Jesus. I'm not going to try to sell you. I'm just going to give you some counsel of what you ought to do. Quote, 
Buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus makes them an offer unlike any merchant in the city. Things that are priceless. Take my advice. He says first, buy from me pure gold. I've told you that there's just tons and tons of references to the Old Testament. Here's one I haven't made uh, for a very long time, the book of Haggai. How about a little Haggai? <laughs> Haggai 2.8, where the Lord says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of the hosts. He's talking about something more than what you could purchase, gold refined by fire, something that is priceless. And this white cloth that throughout Revelation will, will be a reference of signifying holiness. And that medical school was known for its eye medication. says this is something that will heal your spiritual blindness. These are the things that Jesus offers. You go through uh, the marketplace and everyone's calling out the offer of the day, the discount of the day. And Jesus says, let me give you some counsel of what you ought to buy. But Jesus, we're spiritually bankrupt. Exactly. Do you need some help? Well, yes. And the point is Christ is offering what money cannot buy. These spiritual resources of the Lord Jesus that he's offering to this church, they relate back to the book of Isaiah. Now, this time, Isaiah 55, the first three verses. And the prophet writes this. He's, he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words. Isaiah 55, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Have you ever heard those words out of the mouth of Jesus in the Gospel of John? And you who have no money, come. You who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without costs. Someone else is going to pay the bill. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. And the prophet goes on to say this in verse 3. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Does that sound familiar? Every one of these letters, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Come and receive a living soul. Jesus is saying, I am all you really need. They think they have it all, but they have nothing without him. Seven ancient churches in Asia Minor, and all of their traits, all of their fingerprints, are here in the church today, especially here in the Church of America, which I know the best of all the churches, so I'll, I'll point the finger at myself and us. All these churches, all the things that we've seen over these past nine weeks are evident in our own time. Imagine a so-called church that has left Christ outside. We have a church here in Ephesus that's careless, another one that's crushed, another one that's compromising, another one that's in crisis, another one that's Christ-centered. But the biggest punch of all is for the church that's left Christ outside. 
where they have no allegiance to the one who is the firstborn over all of creation. They have no commitment to the one who is true and faithful. They have allegiance only to themselves. Imagine it. A so-called church that would leave Christ outside. A church that would mention his name, but the gospel with Christ at the center is pushed aside. And so what happens? People come to hear something, so they come for a different gospel. This one has a small g at its core. It's often the gospel of moralism, personal comfort, self-help psychology, feel-good self-improvement. Friends, listen, there are way better sources to get good advice like that. If you want good news, you come to a church. If you want good advice, I can show you a bazillion channels on YouTube where you can get a way better package and you won't miss the game. You can pick it up at all sorts of outlets. It's simply good advice. It's often very sentimental and sweet, but it's ultimately irrelevant. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 17 to 19, he spoke of his, of his true church. He said, quote, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so, my friends, we shouldn't be surprised that when a church violates Christ's clear commandment to be faithful and true witnesses, when a church does not proclaim good news but only offers good advice that just saddles people with more list of things to do, I guess I gotta do all that too, right in time for the holidays. We shouldn't be surprised when a church becomes so self-focused and so self-centered that they miss that Christ should be the center of everything and he's left outside in the cold. We shouldn't be surprised when a church does not live by kingdom values of actually putting hands and feet to the gospel. We shouldn't be surprised when that lamp, that lampstand is removed. When Christ is pushed out, gospel people are pushed out and eventually everyone's pushed out. Pushing Christ out starts when a group's confidence is in anything but the Lord. So while some of us might be thinking, oh yeah, I think I know what kind of church he's talking about. I've got, I've got some names. No, forget that. Just point the finger at myself. If I or we put our confidence in anything but the Lord, we sang, one of the first songs we sang was, uh, we shall boast in nothing but what? But the cross. That's gospel. Look what Jesus says next. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Notice, I, I think I'm losing some of you because you're thinking this is kind of heavy and dark. There's, there's still good news. He's love. He, he's saying this out of love, out of care. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He's, he's not wasting his time here. He's trying to get them to wake up and to listen and to open up. Jesus is loving them through this. He's loving them to say, be zealous. Yes, be on fire. Don't be cold. Be on fire. Repent. Turn around. And that's the context for the most famous of passages. It's often used in the context of inviting someone to invite Jesus into their heart, right? 
It's a beautiful passage, but that's not what the context is about. It's, it's not about uh, inviting someone to accept Christ for the first time. It's, it's about Jesus correcting wayward and name-only Christians who've pushed them out of the lives. Now look at verse 20 with that context. Behold, the commandment throughout Revelation, 19 times it shows up. Behold, look, I stand at the door and knock. And the Greek there is a continual action. He's knocking, he's knocking, he's knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and, and eat with him and he with, with me. I will have fellowship with you. What are we going to celebrate at Christmas time? Emmanuel, God with us. God who came close to us. That's what he wants. He wants fellowship with us. That is what the new creation will be. Fellowship with God. Here's another Old Testament reference I wasn't expecting to make, but why not? It's right here in the Bible. The Song of Solomon. The beautiful Song of Solomon 5.2 says, A voice, my beloved, was knocking, open to me. It's a It's the words of a husband knocking at the bedroom chamber for his bride to open the door. And the intimacy of that love God gives to us in his word for us to see the kind of love he has for the church. And for you, just open the door. Let me come in to love you. That's what Jesus is saying to this church that says, oh, we're good. We're good. Verse 21 The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. And I invite you to review on your own as you have time all the the final parts of each of these letters Jesus lays out for those who conquer the wonderful benefits that they'll enjoy and that we'll see throughout the rest of our study in the book of Revelation. The wonderful gift of the tree of life and and the crown of life and our names being inscribed in the book of life and and being a pillar in his temple and all those things play out. Here's a group of people who when Jesus sees what they're up to, it causes a gag reflex. But instead of rejecting them and saying, I don't want to be a part of you, he's still standing at the door and knocking. Is he knocking at your life right now? So usually... The application in a sermon or in a book of the Bible usually comes at the end, right? What what do you want me to do? What's the big wrap-up, Pastor Pete? It usually comes at the end of the sermon, like right about now. When we're like, okay, yeah, let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. That's how we normally do it, right? But the revelation of Jesus Christ flips the script. He gives us all the application up front in chapters 2 and 3. And the whole rest of the book is the theology. The whole rest of the book is unfolding about who God is and who we are and what's happening in the heavenly realms that we cannot see, but he's going to open it up. He's going to pull the curtain back for us to see what God is up to. But, but here's all of the application of nine weeks in the next 10 seconds. Ready? If you want to conquer, if you want to have victory in life, if you want to overcome, we must first not lose our first love or compromise to false teaching. Be discerning. Stop trying to earn God's love, but be motivated by what God has already done for us. Be patient in affliction. Hold fast. Keep to God's word. Honor his name. Be willing to give up what you cannot keep in order to gain what you cannot lose. Your share in the kingdom of God. And the rest of Revelation will unfold that beautiful truth and that beautiful reality to us. 
Let's pray. And so, Lord, we pray that as we complete this study of seven churches, and this last one that's a Christless church, we say, there but by the grace of God, go I, go our church, Lord. Keep us ever vigilant, Lord, to make you number one in our life and the center of our church, our allegiance to you, God, no matter the cost. Help us to apply this application that we might overcome fear and doubt and self-centeredness and attachment to idols and materialism. And help us, Lord, to understand and appreciate and be prepared for the greater realities that you are unveiling to us now and into the new year. We are so thankful that you have blessed us with such great things. We pray that we would have thankful hearts, grateful for all you've done in us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.